submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this is a general command that applies to all relationships. Now, he goes on to talk about different roles in marriage, but that general command still applies. So in marriage, there are different responsibilities, there, there is um, different authority, there's different accountability, but that general command still applies. Submit to one another out of love. And we do it, uh, sorry, out of reverence for Christ. So it's a general command that applies to all relationships, and it commands mutual submission. If you're a boss, you need to submit to your workers. If you're a worker, you need to submit to your boss. If you're a husband, you need to submit to your wife. If you're a wife, you need to submit to your husband, and so on and so forth. But maybe you're wondering, someone's asking, well, how does a boss submit to his, his worker? What, what does this actually look like? What is mutual submission? So we need to define it, right? So let's have a look um, at the definition. The word submission means literally to arrange under. So when I submit to somebody else, I arrange my needs and my interests underneath their needs and their interests. And the fact that it's a mutual thing, I'm called to submit, for example, to Tony, and Tony is called to submit to me, tells us two things. First of all, it tells me that we have equal value. So a boss and his employee, for example, have equal value in the sight of God. They may have different roles. The boss might have more authority, but he'll also have more responsibility and more accountability. Nevertheless, they are equal in value. So that's the first thing that we learn from it. The second thing is that we should respect one another. Therefore, I need to reject self-centeredness and work for the good of others. So even somebody who's in a position of responsibility and authority can actually, res he can actually submit or she can submit himself to other people, to employees for example, by making sure that everything works for everybody's good so that we will thrive together, so that we treat one another with respect, mutual submission. So submit, to submit, the definition is to arrange your needs and your desires under those of another person. Do you understand? Good, let's move on. What's the motivation for doing it? Well, it says there in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In some translations, it'll say out of fear of Christ. And I find this a little bit of a difficult concept because I don't think that either of those two words, which you find in different translations, fear or reverence, I don't think either of them really do justice to what the original word says. And so I did a bit of reading up and research into it. And what, what the commentators say is this is a, a reverence and a fear that comes from the knowledge that Christ is both a loving savior and a coming judge. Let me explain what that means. So reverence for Christ as a coming judge. Let me try and illustrate that. So when Dave Eden was the lead pastor of Harvest, I submitted to him as the lead pastor. But I understood 
that one day when I stood before God, he wouldn't be judging me on whether I was saved or not, but he would be asking me to give an account of the way in which I submitted to Dave. Did I hold any rebellion against him? Was there any bitterness? Was there any sort of microaggression? Isn't that sometimes things that we do to people who, who, who have more authority and accountability than us? We kind of work against them without um, them even realizing it. And I, out of reverence for Christ as a coming judge, I made sure that I submitted myself to him and worked with him in an honorable way. And you know what? Dave was doing the same thing. And it was a wonderful experience for me to grow up in partnership with him in the Christian faith because he was also serving me. He was making sure that I reached my full potential in Christ. He was submitting himself to me because one day he would also have to give an account um, and maybe even more so than me, because at that time he had a position of responsibility and authority. God was going to call him to account. And it's the same for us as husbands. Later on it says um, that, that wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, we are going to give an account to God of whether we created an environment in the home where our children and our wives could grow into the fullness of Christ. So we do it out of reverence for Christ as a coming judge. And secondly, we do it out of reverence for Christ as a loving Savior. Just think about this for a moment. Every person is looking for a sense of righteousness. Now, that's a word that we find hard to understand. But basically, it's a relational word in the Bible. So if Gail and I are in a righteous place, we are in right standing with one another. Nothing has happened to cause our relationship to break down. There hasn't maybe been a breach of trust um, or some other thing that's happened. So when we have righteousness, we have right standing. And all of us want it. All of us have a deep hunger for it. We want to have right standing with our friends. We want our friends to be, when they're talking about us to other people, to say, you know, Ian Ray, he's a good oak. He's a good guy. We want people to say that. He's a lacquer guy. We want to have that sense of righteousness. We want to have that sense of worthiness, of being acceptable. With God, with our friends, with our spouse, with our, our workplace. Let me give you some examples of what, of what righteousness looks like. So, for example, um, a, a man decides that he, he wants to ask a woman to marry him. They've been going out together now. They've been courting for a, a period of time. And now he's just putting everything on the line. And he's going to ask her. What would be the ultimate seal of righteousness? But yes, <laughs> I'd love to marry you. Because she's been watching him. She, she's been observing him. She's been getting to know him. Is she going to reject him or not? And we want that sense of righteousness. <laughs> um, in fact, I was so afraid, I have to be honest, um, when I asked Gail to marry me, because I wasn't sure if, if I had that ultimate seal of righteousness yet, that I did it in such a tentative way that she even didn't realize that I proposed to her. <laughs> it was just so funny. Um, but anyway, that was the case. And then eventually she said, well, are you asking me to marry you to marry me or not? Um, and I said, yes, I am asking. <laughs> and she said, yes, I'd love to marry you. And, and I had that seal of righteousness. Um, maybe, maybe you haven't had that experience. 
What about going for a job interview? You, when you go for a job interview, you know that um, the people who are assessing you have, especially in Harare, have probably spoken to ex-colleagues of yours. They've probably spoken to ex-employers of yours. They've been trying to find out what your reputation is. Isn't that right? And now they've spent time, maybe it's, a, maybe it's one or two interviews, and you come to that point where they get to say whether they're going to employ you or not. And when they say, Ian, we would love to have you on the team. We think you're going to fit in here. We think that we're going to do stuff. We're going to go places together. It's like, phew, that sense of righteousness. Um, another example. I can remember when I was a, a young man back from university, I'd sometimes go to like social um, gatherings or whatever with my dad. And the thing that I longed for was my dad to be excited about introducing me to his friends. And I just wanted him to say, you know, John, this is my son, Ian. He's an engineer. And for John to say, oh, nice to meet you, Ian. Your dad talks about you so much. You know, we want that sense of approval, of worthiness, of righteousness. And brothers and sisters, this is our deepest need. We need to be righteous. We need to be acceptable, to be lovable, to be worthy. And we will move heaven and earth to have right standing with God and significant other people in our life. But the problem is, if we're always working to earn that right standing with God and others, you will be self-centered. Let me say that again. If you're always working to earn it, then you will be self-centered. Everything that you do, even good things, will be motivated by self-interest. But what if, folks, what if God was to rip out your imperfect record, tear it up, throw it to the wind, and put Christ's perfect record into your book of life? What if he were to say, I now judge you, your righteousness, on the basis of Christ and of his CV. You are entirely acceptable. You're lovable. You're worthy. You're righteous. Wouldn't that change everything? You'd be set free from doing things out of a sense of self-centeredness and a need to earn your own righteousness. You'd be set free to do it out of genuine love. You wouldn't have to pursue your own rights and interests at the expense of everyone else's. I often go back and relate it to my own experience because I understand that the best. If, if I'm standing up here to earn some sort of right standing with God and with you, then I'm doing it out of the wrong motive. But if I already know that I have right standing with God, I can come up here and I can be free to do this in such a way that it serves you. That at the end of it, people are not saying, or I'm wanting people to say, isn't Ian an amazing preacher? Instead, they're saying, wow, isn't God an amazing God? It sets us free. Do you remember when Jesus watched the disciples' feet? I'm not sure if I put it up here. He did. I did. <laughs> Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up and washed his disciples' feet. 
You know, there was nobody to wash the feet on that occasion because normally it was a slave's job or a servant's job. The person with the lowest standing in that particular group would be the one who did the washing. And because there was no one to do it, I don't know if we, if we fully get this, but the, the people would recline like this around the table. So guess where my head is going to be? It's going to be next to the next guy's feet. And, you know, it's not like they, they'd been able to have a bath and, and come with shoes and socks on. No, they were in sandals. They'd been walking. They'd been out and about all day. So there was a real need, actually, for the sake of hygiene and it just being a pleasant experience for people to have their feet washed. And just look at it. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and he washed his disciples' feet. Can you see the foundation from which he was working? It's the same for us. If we know that we are righteous, if we know that we are in right standing with God, we can humble ourselves, we can do things which the world would say are um, undignified or... Uh, you, you, and, and we can do them because we know what our standing is. So, since Christ's sacrifice has declared you righteous, the best way, remember we're doing things out of reverence for Christ, the best way we can do things out of reverence for Christ is to submit to others, to put them first. And we can do it because Jesus did it for us, and we can do it out of reverence for Christ as a loving Savior. He's declared us righteous, and the best way that we can revere him and what he did on the cross is to follow his example of submission, to develop that same attitude of submission that Christ displayed. So the definition is to arrange your needs and desires under those of others. The motivation is we're doing it out of reverence for Christ. Let's have a look at the example of submission. And what I'm going to do is just have a look at some scriptures from Philippians 2, verse 3. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul uses the example of Christ as the basis for a command. This is what he says. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Christ's example shows us that this is how we should behave. Now, I think we all understand selfish ambition. What does it mean to be conceited? It means to have an unrealistically high view of one's own importance. And of course, if we don't know, if we aren't assured that we have right standing with God, then it's necessary for us to puff up our own importance, to have an unrealistically high sense of our own importance in order to feel righteous and worthy and acceptable to people. Isn't that what we do? And it's, it's conceit. <laughs> it's, it's like... The, the problem with it is, Tim Keller tells us that it's like an organ in the body that is puffed up and inflamed. When it's puffed up and inflamed, it's in danger of bursting at any time. And of course, our egos are in danger of bursting at any time when we are self-conceited. Because really, it's on the basis of, of, of deep down this fear that we're not acceptable, that we're not worthy, that we're not lovable. Then have a look at the contrast 
there. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says, but what should we do instead of being selfish and conceited? We need to be in humility, considering, considering others better than ourselves. And I like that particular translation. In, in, in some translations it says, in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. I don't think that that's the right translation and the commentators that I've looked at agree. It's in humility consider others better than yourselves. How do you do it? Well, the answer is in the next verse. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Remember we said earlier that our default setting is look to Ian's interests and needs first. Well, it is for me. I don't know if it is for you. <laughs> Instead, it should be look also to the needs and interests of others. Does that mean that God doesn't want my needs and interests to be met? That doesn't mean that. It simply means that we need to get our needs and our interests into perspective. My needs... My interests, my dreams, my goals, they're not the most important ones in the cosmos. Other people also have dreams. Other people also have goals. And I should look not only to my own, but also to those of others. Just imagine a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, a work relationship, father-child relationship, where each party looks first to the interests of the other. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine what our church would look like if we operated in the same way. A relationship that operates on that basis or a church that operates on that basis is going to be united and it's going to grow. But in contrast, when every person is fighting for himself or herself, then things disintegrate. There's a, there's a passage in James. I'm going to paraphrase it slightly because I can't remember it exactly. But it just so typifies our Zimbabwean situation. It says, wherever there is selfish ambition, you find chaos and disorder of the worst kind. Isn't that the, isn't that the case? That's why we need to do it. Just as a very brief aside, if you are in a relationship where there isn't an understanding that we are going to submit mutually to one another, when one party is not submitting to the other and refuses to, that is an abusive dynamic um, and it needs to be dealt with as an abusive dynamic. So don't get me wrong, if, if one, one party is not buying into this vision of mutual submission, then we, we need to talk some more. Right, so we, um, we set aside our own importance um, for the interests of others. Let's have a look at the second aspect of Christ's example. Overlook your rights for the interests of others. In verse 6 it says there in Ephesians 2, talking about Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Can you see there that Christ is in very nature God? Can you see that he was equal to God? That means that he has the same rights as God. 
And yet he chose to let go of his rights and to come to earth and be a servant so that we could be saved. Isn't that amazing? This is the example that we're following. If we hold on to our rights, sometimes we will do it in such a way that we compromise the needs of other people. The, the best example that I can think of this at the moment, I was trying to think of another one because I know I've shared this with the church before, um, is to do with our gate. Uh, we don't have an electric gate at the moment. You, someone's got to run down and slide it open. Now, we've got a gardener, and part of the agreement that I have with Enoch is that when he hears someone hooting at the gate, he runs down and opens the gate. Sometimes he doesn't hear or he doesn't do it. Now, I'm sitting at my desk thinking, it's my right to get Enoch to open the gate for me. But as I'm waiting for him to do that, and delaying and delaying and delaying, the person who's sitting at the gate is not having their need met. So sometimes I have to let go of my right in order to fulfill the other person's need. That's an example of what we're talking about. And remember, I'm not saying that rights are a bad thing. But what I am saying is that standing on your rights might deny another person's needs. I wonder where we would be today if it wasn't for the humility of Christ. If Jesus had insisted on his rights and he'd refused to set them aside for your sake, for your need, you would be dead. We would all have been destroyed a long time ago. We need to be more focused on on needs than rights. Submissive people have learned to do th two things, to set aside their rights in order to meet another person's need and to set aside their own importance and look also to the interests of others. But the, uh, just a little disclaimer here. We can only tru be truly submissive if we have two things. First of all, the righteousness of God, that assurance of right standing with God. And then also, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is so important. If you think of a car, it doesn't matter how clearly you know where you want to go. Maybe you're wanting to follow somebody else, somebody's ahead of you as an example of where you should go. It's all very clear. You're not going to be able to do it unless you start up the engine and let out the clutch. And it's the same here. A good motivation isn't good enough. A good example isn't good enough. We need power as well to enable us. And that's what we come to now, the last thing, which is the power for submission. Just take a look at Paul's run-up to his teaching on marriage. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 21, he commands us submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're not going to be able to submit to one another unless we have been filled with the Spirit. Now this is a, a little bit of a confusing concept because the Spirit is a person, isn't that right? The Spirit is not a force. He's not some sort of power. He's not like a bolt of energy. He's a person. So if I have the Holy Spirit in me, I have as much of the Holy Spirit as I'm ever going to get. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And of course, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how much of the Spirit, how much of us does the Spirit have? So Paul says here, he uses the analogy of being drunk. 
So when you're comparing two things, you need to look at in what way they're different and in what way the same. So in what way is being filled with the Spirit and being drunk on alcohol different? Well, being drunk on alcohol leads to debauchery. Isn't that right? Whereas being filled with the Spirit leads to life. Okay? Now, in what way are those two experiences similar? The similarity is that if you are drunk, you have lost control, isn't it? As time goes on, you start to lose control of your body. What you have done is you've yielded control of your body to alcohol. So the way in which being drunk and being filled with the Spirit is the same is that if you are filled with the Spirit, you have yielded willingly control of your body to the Holy Spirit. So this concept of being filled is the idea of being controlled. And so in Romans 8, for example, when Paul is teaching there, he says, don't be controlled by the flesh, which leads to death. Be controlled by the Spirit. Um, there's other places in the Bible where it talks about a person being filled with grief. What does it mean if you're filled with grief? It means that you're controlled by that grief. It means that everything that you see is tainted by that grief. If you're full of anger, everything that you see is tainted by anger. And so if we're filled with the Spirit, it means that we are controlled by the Spirit. All we can see is God and Christ and the truth that is in the Bible. J.R. Packer uses a very good example of this. He says that um, if you can imagine a big building with uh, spotlights sort of sunk into the ground and shining up onto it. He says the Holy Spirit is like those spotlights. So you can't even really tell where the spotlights are often. But what you do know is that the building is illuminated. And all you can see really is the building. There are other things around it, but they just sort of fade away. And so when we're filled with the Spirit, He is shining a light onto the face of Jesus. He's shining a light onto the truth and helping us to see that truth in a way that it has a huge impact on our lives. Another example. Um, I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago. This was a, a, a painter, a successful painter, who had just recently got married. And he was so taken up with his wife, he was so in love with his new wife, that he kept putting her into the paintings that he was painting. Didn't matter whether it was a cityscape or a landscape, there would be his wife somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the background or in the scenery, leaning up against a rock or whatever it was. This is what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. We see Jesus everywhere. Um, and he just captivates us. Just lastly, the form of that verb there where it says, be filled with the Spirit. There's a, there's a lot of information packed in that. The first thing is that it means we do need to do it on a continual basis. The Greek form of the word is the form that you would use to describe something that needs to happen all the time. So we need to be filled with the Spirit all the time. Secondly, it's a command. And then thirdly, it's actually the Spirit or God that does the filling. The form of that verb is passive. In other words, it, it happens to us. So the interesting thing is that when we get up in the morning and we just say, Father God, please fill me with your Spirit today. We do it because we're commanded to do it. God then does the filling. 
We do the willing, he does the filling. And then things start to change. And I can tell you, <laughs> well, I, I can think of examples in my own life. Also with my children, I can remember sometimes when they would be struggling with something, not wanting to do something, and I would just say, what we need to do is just say to God, you know, at the moment, I'm not really willing. But help me to be willing. And then just to, to, to declare it. Just say, Father God, I want you to control me now. I want you to take a hold of my will. I want you to fill the screen of my life. I want to see Jesus just the way that a building is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That's when we let out the clutch. That's when the power is engaged and it gives us the power to actually do what, we, what we're meant to do. And so I know that this is about marriage. It's actually about all other relationships as well. The power in relationships, the power in marriage is a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of submission. And this is what we desperately need. Shall we pray? I'm just going to ask for you to quietly request the Holy Spirit to fill you. But I don't want you to think that um, now is the only time that it should happen. Oh, just hunger for it. Keep asking for it. But there's always a start, eh? Hey? Holy Spirit, please come and fill us. Come and fill us. Come and shine a light on the face of Jesus. We just want to be able to see him everywhere in everything that we do. We want to be able to see his example. We, we want to be able to look at the Bible and see the face of Jesus in the Bible. We know that as we contemplate the Lord's face, we are transformed from glory to glory. And that's what we want. That's what we want to happen in our lives. And Father, I just pray for every person here that you would overcome that spirit of self-centeredness that we have in us. Please overcome it. Please send your Holy Spirit to fill us so that we will have the power to overcome it. Because we want to be like Jesus. We're not called Christ followers for nothing. We want to be like him. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.